thing is, let me get this turned on this time. Am I on? Am I on? All right. Now, the interesting thing is, we go to First Baptist of Troy, which is a pretty large church, much larger than either of us grew up in. This is the size, or maybe a smidgen larger, than what I spent most of my growing up in, uh, you know, sanctuary-wise. You guys call this auditorium or sanctuary? Sanctuary. What? Oh, we, I got a mix. Okay, so you guys can fight that one out later. Um... And both of us actually grew up in Michigan, on the west side of the state. I was originally born in Flint, but we moved when I was young. And my dad, my dad pastored, and we went to a small. He took a small church on the west side of the state between Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. And that was again, like this, probably less in attendance than you guys normally have. It ran about 50 most of the time, and I believe you guys are a bit above that. Or, or, oh, it, it varies. Okay, okay. Again, we're not, we're not going to... But if you'll turn to Genesis 18, we're going to look at an Old Testament story this evening. Genesis chapter 18. And I will try to do this enough in a story fashion to uh, teach it, but also be good for the kids to hear as well. On that note, it's been interesting in a, a book I've read recently, um, which is by Ken Ham, who I do think highly of. He wrote a book called Already Gone, and in it, he multiple times states that he is, does not like it to be called Bible stories. And I have, and, and I'm a little conflicted because I'm again taking Old Testament historical books at seminary, and they will tell you to, in a sense, tell it like it is a story. Because what is it? It's na- most of the Old Testament is narrative. Okay, if I could liken it to a novel, it is like reading a book. And not, not that I'm not saying the Bible isn't a book, but it is very similar to reading a novel. Okay, a long story. Ken Ham's point is, there are many who will use that to kind of make it seem like they're not all that true, that they're more of a fairy tale. And that is not what we want to get across. The Bible is absolutely true. And we need to realize it's absolutely true, though, again, in narrative, they are very story-like. And we're going to look at a story about Abraham, one of the most well-known Old Testament characters. And I think this this will, I think, be helpful for us. And I'm going to read a few verses in chapter 17 to kind of set the tone for what we get into in chapter 18. God has just confirmed His covenant with Abraham again. God gave His covenant several times to Abraham and at a little bit different levels. In what we're actually going to focus in on, He gets more specific than He has been before about a particular aspect of it. But just to set the tone, I want to read Genesis 17, 15 through 22. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? Sorry, is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. 
But God said, No, but Sarah your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you, and behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year, when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Okay, and he starts giving him more specifics about Isaac. What happened previously? Again, they are old. Abraham is not a young man. Okay, he is much older than any of us here. Right? Okay, some of you might say not say much older than some of us. I, I get it. I get it. Okay? But Sarah is 90 years old, long past being able to bear children. And she's never had a child anyway. She's been barren. No son. So a number of years before this, they did what? Sarah was like, here, take Hagar, because this was not an uncommon practice back then. Take Hagar. So Abraham also married Hagar, and there was a son, Ishmael. That created a little bit of friction in the household because Hagar kind of got a little puffed up about this because she had a son and the master's real wife didn't and that didn't go very well for both sides. There was a little bit of a womanly uh, cat fighting going on and we'll leave it at that. Abraham still loves Ishmael. This is brought up in this passage. He has all the desire that even Ishmael could fulfill the covenant. And God says specifically, Ishmael is not going to be that guy. Now, because I think partly because of Abraham, he's still going to bless Ishmael. God says it right here. But, he says specifically, Sarah is going to have a son, and that son, you're going to name Isaac, and he is going to be the one that the covenant goes through. He is going to be one that I fulfill the covenant through. And that is where I want to look into chapter 18. The first 16 verses. Best I can tell, this happens less than a year. Some would say weeks or months, but it is definitely less than a year because you have this, the issue of Sarah's going to bear to you at this season next year. So this is actually a fairly short amount of time that it elapses between 17 and 18. So let me read the first 16 verses there. That will again give us the, the story. We're going to look at, and then we'll look at the details about it. Chapter 18. Now the Lord appeared to him, to Abraham, by the oaks at Mamre, while he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by, Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried in the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. 
Then they said to him, okay, the three men, they said to him, Where is Sarah your wife? And he said, There in the tent. He said, I will surely, again, this is one of the three men, he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will come to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And then the men arose from there and looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And that does start a, another little section of the story. I want to focus in on the mainly the first 15 verses. I read the 16th because that, that does set up what is, what is going afterwards because they headed out. Now, first we want to look at who are these guys? Three men appear. And it gets pretty clear based on who is saying this and what he is saying that this is the Lord. And who do we equate the Lord with at this point in time? We would say this would be a theophany, an appearance of Christ. In general, you know, this is in a sense this is something we can't prove super, super well. But Every time we have an Old Testament reference to either the angel of Yahweh or to the Lord, there are times when those beings, and I'll call them a being because it isn't just a man at that point in time, they will accept worship. They will give out the word of the Lord differently than an angel would. Angels always do what? Deny worship. And many times what they say is... A, is termed a little bit differently. They will speak for the Lord, but not as the Lord. We generally ascribe this to the second person of the Godhead, to Christ. Why? Because He is the one who became a man. So this would be a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, likely with a couple of angels. But they basically appeared as men. It becomes clear that they're more than men as we move through our story here. He does what was typical in Eastern customs here. He does what? Tries to show them hospitality. Okay, the culture is a lot different than what our culture is. If we had someone strange come up to our door, what do we tend to do? Lock the door. <laughs> okay. Okay. It, it, is, it was different. And our culture is still a lot different than what Eastern culture is. But back then, if you had a traveler, someone who was coming by, the custom was to welcome them. The custom was to show them hospitality. Abraham does that. He greets them. He bows down to them. He offers to get their feet washed. And again, they would have worn sandals. And the main thing that got dirty would have been their feet from the dirt they went through. So again, the custom was to wash their feet. Christ gives us a good example of that in the New Testament. 
He wants them to sit down. He wants to bring them, and I, and I like how he terms it here, let me bring you a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself and then you can go on. He says, piece of bread. Okay, small. And this is in contrast to what he does. Because he does not bring them a little at all. After he gets them to agree to the hospitality, they sit. And what does he do? He hurries into the tent to his wife and says, quickly prepare this would be right. All you ladies, you prefer spur-of-the-moment meals, right? Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Okay, not piece of bread, multiple cakes. One of the sources I looked up on this described this as a lot of flour. And here are some of the references that would clue us in on this. Again, we have three here, three measures. Abigail, Nabal's wife Abigail, when David was coming, because he was mad because Nabal was a fool and said, no, your men protected my stuff, but you can't have anything. And so he's going to come and he's mad and ready to kill people over this. David has multiple men with him, a couple hundred men likely. Abigail takes five measures of flour for cakes. Okay? We have three here. This was five for a large amount of guys. I realize they may not have all gotten a huge portion. But the other thing we have is the trench that Elijah built around. He had a trench around that altar. When fire came down, they filled with water. That trench would have held two measures. And again, weights, weights and measurements didn't stay the same back then per se. But just again, this is not a little amount. They didn't just get little Ritz crackers. Okay, He didn't come out then, break open a pack of Ritz crackers and hand them a couple. Okay. This was a serious amount of bread. He prepared a lot of bread. They would have had leftovers. The next thing we see, he goes to the herd. What does he get from the herd? He doesn't get a goat or a sheep. He gets what? He gets a calf. He gets a cow, the larger animal, and he gets a calf, the tender meat. He gets these guys the good stuff. Seriously brings out to them the best and plenty of it. The next thing he does as he's doing this, because again he's having a syrup prepare it, he takes them curds and milk. Curds would be what? Cheese. He brings them cheese and milk. Luxury items back then. He pulls out all the stops and gives these guys, if I can say it, a feast. He brings them a seriously nice meal. A couple things play into that. One, he's being very hospitable, very generous. But two, it also shows us Abraham's prosperity. Abraham is a wealthy man. What has again happened a few chapters earlier in here? Him and Lot had to separate. He and Lot had to separate. Why? Their herdsmen were fighting because they had so much stuff, it put the guys managing the stuff in conflict. And so they went separate ways. So again, he is a wealthy man, but he is pulling out all the stops, giving these guys a great meal. And I hope you're not all too hungry. My stomach was growling a little bit this morning. Not quite doing it yet. But he brings these guys a great meal. A seriously nice meal. 
And even more importantly than that, Abraham is what? An extremely wealthy man. He is the boss. And you look at verse 8. It says, He took the curds of milk and the calf which he prepared, placed it before them, and he was standing by them, them under the tree as they ate. Who is serving them? Abraham himself is serving these guys. Okay? He's not having a servant do it. And, and there were servants around, I'm sure. But he himself is making sure these guys are well cared for. He himself is doing the showing of hospitality. Abraham was a great man of character. But the real focus of this story actually comes in the next section. Talking about Sarah. Because this whole time, have these men seen Sarah? If they have, it's been very, very little. It's likely they did not see her at all. But they specifically asked, verse 9, Where is Sarah, your wife? Where is she at? Now, who do we say was visiting them? Christ, Theophany, a couple of angels. Do you think they knew where Sarah was? Okay, let me clue you in. Yes. They knew where Sarah was. This is being asked for a reason. To make sure Sarah is paying attention and she is close by. This is, in a sense, more for her than it was for those men. Abraham answers, she's there in the tent. And again, he, this is angel of Yahweh, this is Christ, Pre-incarnate, angel of the Lord here. I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah your wife will have a son. The promise again, and even more specific. It was pretty specific this last time he talked to Abraham. Here it is even more specific. Okay, This time next year. Not in the season, this time next year. More specific. And... Sarah was listening at the tent door which was behind him. Sarah heard this. And what takes place? Because here's where we wrestle through the issue of what is she thinking here in her reply? She laughed to herself. Okay, she hears this and she's thinking what? Yeah, right. Because, what, a year ago at most, she was how old? Ninety? Ninety years old. Has never had a child, because she was barren, is well, well past the physical ability of women to bear children because of her age. And she's thinking, there's no way. There is absolutely no way this can happen. And she laughs because she knows that this is physically impossible. And this is not a laughter of, hey, this would be is nice right now. This is a laughter of unbelief. And I, and I do believe that. But we have to reconcile that with something else which we'll get to in a bit. But she knows she's past, past bearing children. That comes out specifically even in the text. Because first of all, what happens? The Lord addresses Abraham. Why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? 
at this time I will return to you, and at this time next year, at the appointed time, sorry, I will return to you, and at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Now, we get to verse 15. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh. Why would she deny it? Well, notice back in verse 12, it says, Sarah laughed to herself. This is not something she did loudly so that everybody could hear. If it was audible at all, it would have been extremely quiet. It's even likely that this was in her mind. She was thinking this. That she's thinking the, yeah, right, this can't happen. It is physically impossible. So is it, is it easy to deny something that nobody heard you said? Nobody heard you say? Yeah, that's, that's when we like to deny stuff. Even if we did actually think it. Because nobody can prove it. But not in this case. And that is the real point of this section here. God says there's 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And then look in verse 15. What's he going to do? He is going to challenge her denial. She's afraid because he challenges it and he says, You did laugh. She's scared because she knows that nobody heard her. And she's afraid of this. And again, she lies about it. But he very carefully, very directly reconfirms, Yes. You did laugh. I know you laughed about this matter. I know you thought it was impossible. And we're kind of left there with what she thought in her response. But there is another place we need to look at for her response. Anybody know where that would be? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11, please. Hebrews chapter 11. And Abraham gets a large section of this, and in a sense, rightfully so. But Sarah is in here specifically. Hebrews 11. Verses 11 and 12. Read this. By faith even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered Him faithful who had promised. Therefore there was born even of one man and him as good as dead and that as many as descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is upon the seashore. What does Hebrews teach us? Because Hebrews says specifically, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. By her faith, again, this is a chapter about people who had faith. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. Wait a minute. What was just told her in the end of that paragraph we looked at? She laughed, and she's confronted with the fact that I know you laughed. 
But I think therein actually is the point. She realized finally that God knows everything. Because he made it a point to tell her, yes, I know you laughed. You can verbally deny it. I know you did it. He doesn't say this directly, but why is that? It's because he's God. He knows exactly what she was thinking, and he points it out to her. He sticks it to her. I know you doubted. I know you laughed about this issue. And I think that that confrontation is actually what leads us to what? To what's referenced in Hebrews 11. She had faith, finally. And I think I say it that way. She finally realizes that what? God has promised this stuff multiple times, promised a number of things. What's happened? God's fulfilled them. God has made this particular thing. You will have a son. And then he says to her, I even know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking this is impossible. But the issue is, I'm God. Not a man. I'm God. And I know what you're thinking. And she finally realizes the God who knows what I'm thinking is able to allow me to have a son. As he has promised. Because he has been found faithful. He has repeatedly renewed that covenant. And he has been faithful to Abraham, her husband. And she finally realizes the God who knows everything is able to allow me to have a son. And this, and again, this we have revealed through what? Through the New Testament. We don't get this clearly in the Old Testament. But this is why God's Word is inspired. God's Word is accurate. And I believe her response of faith comes after the confrontation about her laughing. When she is specifically pointed out that, yes, I know what you thought. I know that you laughed. And her denial stops. And she then realizes that God is faithful. God is able to allow this to take place. And she considers the God who makes these promises her God and a faithful God. I'm not going to read it, but the end of this chapter, these men are leaving. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it because it does tie into us bringing this to a conclusion. God says to Abraham, they're talking amongst themselves, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And there's a reason he doesn't hide it from him, and that is because of his nephew Lot. He then goes on and tells Abraham that I am going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the great wickedness, the horrendous, awful, extremely humongous wickedness and evil that is Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I'm going to do that. And we have Abraham intercede for them. Now I'm sure partially in Abraham's thinking is what? My nephew Lot is nearby. He is even right up near Sodom. And so he first asked for what? That if there's 50, you won't judge. Because he says, Lord, will you judge the righteous, condemn, judge the righteous, equivalent with the wicked? 
And this does bring into play the whole issue of we have a good God, do good things always happen? No, good things don't always happen. But that's not because God is evil. That is because of sin. It's not because of God, it's because of sin. But in judgment here, God, he says to God and he intercedes. He starts out at 50, goes to 45, to 40, to 35, to 30. Then asks even if there's 20, would you not destroy everything? And then he backs off even to 10. And my thinking has to be, Abraham's thinking for sure there's at least 10 righteous individuals between Lot and those who are his servants and you know, family group and everything else. There'll be at least 10. We know from the next chapters that's not the case. But even in spite of that, and likely partially because of Abraham's intercession, who's spared? Lot is. Likely in large part because of Abraham. Because what all Lot was doing is getting closer and closer to the most wicked part of the world in his day. And that was having an effect on him and his family. And that, and that again, is, a, is another issue we're not going to get into tonight. But over and over in Abraham's life, we see the graciousness of God. He led him out of the Chaldees. He's protected him from this king, from that king, from other folks. He's allowed him to go and with a small band rescue Lot and all the people of Sodom and just completely crush those who had already crushed a much, much larger army. Bring that all back. God has been extremely gracious to Abraham. And in his life, in this particular story even, we see what? We see the faithfulness of God who promised things and did what? Kept His promises. We also see the care and provision of God. He promises certain things directly, but He provided for Abraham. Abraham was not wealthy because of himself. Multiple times there is direct reason from God that Abraham accumulated his great amount of herds and provisions. It was of the Lord blessing him. And Abraham knew this. And I want us to really think about a couple of things in this. First of all, we have the issue with Sarah. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Does the Lord know where we're at, what our problems are? Is the Lord able to deal with those matters? Because let's be frank, I don't know of any believers who don't have any hardships in life. I don't know of any believers who don't have to wait for good things to happen. I don't know of any believers who sometimes don't have to wait for the truth of a situation to come out. Are all those things part of life? Hardship? The delay of good things? Maybe being, you know, having falsehood against you? Are all those things things that happen in life? Yes, they are. How do you and I need to respond to those things? Do we respond like Sarah did? initially I hope not 
But is it easy to do that? We see things in our lives that are what? Out of our control and impossible. Whether that's an unsaved family member, whether that's some physical health-related hardship, whether that is something financial that is overwhelming, whether that is some relationship that has been destroyed that needs to be repaired. Are there things in life that are way, way out of our hands? And I'm not saying we don't do the right thing to work towards those, but there are things in life that are out of our control to change. They're not out of God's control to change. You and I need to respond in faith and dependence on God. Not that we don't work towards a good end. There is burden and we need to work towards a good end. We have a burden of that on us. We are not to be lazy and sit on our hands. Even in spiritual matters. And again, we, I could reference this morning, right? The spiritual things of a race. We are to be diligent spiritually. But there are so many things out of our hands that we need to have faith independence on God and we need to be like Sarah ultimately was realizing that God is in control God is in charge God can change the outcome even when you and I can't and we could also again reference Abraham's life he on two or three occasions did the exact same foolish thing said that his wife was his sister and it got him into trouble every time. <laughs> and he still didn't learn. And this is a man of faith who left home, did all kinds of traveling and everything else because of what God said to him. Still made mistakes. And we should learn from those mistakes. But again, ultimately, you and I need to have faith in a trustworthy, promise-keeping, omnipotent, omniscient God who knows all things and is able to change the outcomes in life. He is able to save hard hearts that you and I don't even get a word in unto. He is able to help work out relational difficulties that are beyond our mending. Not that we don't put effort into it. He is able to even help out with health-related things. To help out with financial things. You and I need to trust God in the hard areas of life. Because God is faithful even when the situation looks out of our control. And there are times we're going to have to be patient. How old were Abraham and Sarah? How long have they been promised a son who is going to be, you know, and ultimately a nation as numerable as the stars or the sands on the shore? They waited Years and years and years and years. And it's easy for us to be impatient with waiting on the Lord, though He is a faithful, promise-keeping God who you and I can depend on. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for this story. We thank You for the great illustration it is concerning what, you and I, what we need to do concerning You. It is very easy for us to not have patience. It's very easy for us to see things that are beyond our human control and to doubt your goodness and your faithfulness. 
And I pray that You would give us a heart that depends on You, that trusts You, that realizes You are the God, the all-powerful, all-knowing One, and You will accomplish Your will and Your purpose. Help us to be faithful. Help us to pray. Help us to be working. But help us ultimately to depend upon You and to look for Your will. And may You, as You have been, continue to be faithful and trustworthy and keep Your promises as You have throughout time. And we thank You for Your great goodness. In Christ's name, Amen.